Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Mark Mills again. Mark, how are you doing? Great to be back. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> and uh, yeah, because the listeners don't know, we were just chatting and having a good time. And uh, yeah. as, as uh, physics and geeks want to do. <laughs> exactly. And the... Down the geek rabbit holes. <laughs> so. Yes. Yeah, we're really, it's really fun to do that. And I have to say, one of the things I miss about physics was to be able to get into chats about, I mean, back then it was about like, quantum mechanics and what is what's reality and you know yeah. what happens if you start moving too close to the speed of light and things like that and it's really mind-bending stuff and i don't get to talk about mind and stuff like that as much these days it's great fun i have a i have a friend who's a astrophysicist i think we've talked about him before he retired from goddard but he he's uh you know he was and still is a practicing astrophysicist and we we get together when we can for breakfast and talk about the these uh, uh, fun and goofy things about whether the speed of light is constant at the other mm-hmm. parts of the universe or, or, or the same, uh, you know, the questions of entanglement, whether it's an artifice of how we measure or whether it's an actual phenomena. Uh, and as you know, uh, for, you know, probably some of your listeners and audience know that quantum entanglement is one of those strangest things that, uh, uh, that Einstein did, didn't like. He called it famously spooky action at a distance. Mm-hmm. It w- wasn't, he, he wasn't convinced it was a real phenomenon. It was an artifice of the math. And of course, as you know, we've undertaken experiments sequentially for now over a decade to establish that it is a real phenomenon. And it uh, seems to violate a lot of uh, of other domains of physics, be, be, including the speed of light for information exchange. So it's pretty it's pretty cool stuff. And and as you know, very recently, it's, you can Google up and find this if you haven't seen it. Uh, the scale of entanglement now has moved up to um, uh, beyond molecular scale, Mo- objects larger than photons, sort of, um, you know, collections of um, atoms big enough to be molecules to be fully entangled, including a um, sort of nanoscopic scale vibrating uh, array. So we're sort of creeping up into um, human scale for entanglement. It's kind of, yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. It's weird to think about where it could go. Do you, do you know about, the news yesterday or the day before? Which one is it? from out of out of Norway? Maybe what what I the missed. Nobel Prize in Physics went to three people on uh, quantum yes. entanglement. Yeah, exactly. So that, I mean, that's why I was thinking about it t- today. It's I mean, it's a delicious piece of physics, and and for me, it epitomizes the you know the answer to the question that you know, as you know, we've talked before. I'm I'm viewed as a negative person about the all the dreams of magic new energy. Because what people are talking about is just silly. It's not new. It's old. But but I'm always quick to point out that in physics, one thing we haven't had are any truly consequential revolutions for a long time. In new physics, if you like. We're sort of teasing out what we thought we've discovered a century ago. Quantum mechanics is not a new thing. It's a century old. And, you know, atomic, atomic physics, uh, all these things are, you know, we're still wrestling with them. But we haven't had, you know, quote, new physics. Uh don't be new physics. It's, it's talk about hubris to think that we figured out all the forces and structures of the universe that we live in. I don't. I mean, I I wouldn't buy that story. But who knows when we get new physics? I mean, is it a another thousand years? It is. It is it. Uh, does this Nobel Prize presage sort of a a tipping point that will really uncover the quantum nature of the universe and start to manipulate it in useful ways beyond you know beyond simple computation? I mean, it's pretty. I. The future is, uh, in the long future, will be very different than people imagined. But this, of course, is where I get I get at the crosswise with people who imagine the near future being profoundly different from the near past. It's it won't <laughs> anyway. Well, the 
Yeah, actually, the, the, the slowdown in physics discoveries is one of the reasons I left, because yeah. when I, you know, I learned about early, mid 20th century physics, and then when I went into it, I'm thinking, well, I'll just make a detector and discover a whole bunch of new particles. <laughs> and that, that time is gone. gone. Well, may, maybe there'll be some new particles. I mean, I, I just love the Russian nesting doll uh, of uh, particle physics. I mean, every time we build a bigger machine to look for a smaller particle. I mean, it's just delicious. Mm -hmm. Large Hadron Collider is the size of a, of a town in order to find particles that are submicroscopic. I mean, <laughs> subatomic particle. It's, and we keep finding new things as we uh, increase the energy of the uh, collisions uh, in the sort of nesting doll. Uh, anyway, but you're right. There's nothing, we're not going to find an electron again. There's nothing as fundamental. About Who knows? I mean, we're trying to unravel whether there is such a thing as dark matter and dark energy, as you know. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. There seems to be debate now whether or not they might have got something wrong in, in, I'll call it the arithmetic, that led to the idea of dark matter. Maybe, maybe there isn't dark matter. Maybe we're just looking at the universe in the wrong way. Yeah, it's, it's, so it's tempting to go there, but I'm going to pull back. I know. Sorry. And, uh, <laughs> I'm going to bring us back to Earth. And yeah. I'm now I'm trying to think of the Nobel Prize comes from Sweden. And I think I said Norway. Is yeah. it Norway or Sweden? It's it's uh for Sweden, the Swedish. Okay, good because I said Norway and I had to correct myself. Yeah, no Nobel was uh, Swedish. Was as everybody Swedish and invented, of course, as everybody probably knows or should. The dynamite and sort of to atone for his sins, he thought dynamite was useful, and he's right. It's very useful in construction, but it, like so many other things, it has other uses. Yeah, actually, one of my big things in, in is that technology, here's the way I think of it. Technology is not, does not have a, a moral value. Yeah. It amplifies the values of the person or culture or system yeah. wielding it. Absolutely. And, and, more, and, and equally importantly, the idea that tech, people think of technology as exogenous to being human, that it's somehow, it, it is, it, it's in the essence of being human. Humans, uh, what differentiates them from the animal kingdom is the... Uh, magnitude and scale of inventiveness. We, you know, to to be human is to invent. We've been inventing since the you know prehistory. That's what humans mm -hmm. do. Uh, we, we, it's not ex it's not like technology is an exogenous thing. And we find a machine, if you if you know what I mean. We we deliberately want to invent to increase safety, comfort, convenience, and of course to do bad things like fight wars and steal things from people. Yeah, I think we're problem solvers and we like to solve problems. And yeah, that's yeah. physical machines or, or systems, politics. These are things right. we use to solve problems. That's how you instantiate what's in your head. You can't, you can't, you have to make a machine for a service or problem solving. Yeah. Now, there are three things from last time that I wanted to pick up on and take your pick of which, which you want to start with. Or if you want to pick up on something of your own, I'm happy to follow because I'm enjoying this. All right. So one of them is. You can't have too much fun. This is, we're, you know, it's a serious. No. Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to sit on deathbeds being like, oh, I talked to Mark too long. <laughs> or I talked to Josh too long. Well, I hope not. So, okay. One was, um, I'm going to, I'm going to do all three real quick. One was, did you get to read the do the math block? Two is unlimited growth. You said, if I remember right, you said that it was disproved. And to me, it's not something that they didn't, they ran simulations to test a, a, an, 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 a, a process, an analytical method. Yeah. And to say it's disproved is like to say to me, like, uh, it's to say, like, we disproved Taekwondo. It's like a technique, not a, an outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third one is that you said that you focus, there's a lot of stuff that writes about the problems with fossil fuels. There's not a lot of stuff that talks about the problems with, and I have to say, so-called 
green, renewable, clean energy sources. Exactly. And so you write that. Now, it seems that to me that there are problems with both of them. And it feels to me, the way I think about it is that um, people who are, I don't know what the label is. On one side, you have environmentalists, often liberal, Mm -hmm. saying there's big problems with fossil fuels. Yeah. And um, they kind of conclude, and I'm putting air quotes around conclude, that the green, the so-called green, renewable, uh, clean stuff must then work. Right. But that's not a that's not a valid conclusion. Right. Then you have people on the other side, which might be market based uh, or conservative, often, and they say, "Well, the, look at the problems with renewables," and they conclude also that the market, or which tends to be conclu- continuing with fossil fuels onto nuclear and fusion, that that must work. Right. It seems to me that both criticisms are accurate. Yeah. Neither conclusion is right. Right. Both lead to big problems. Right. And what that points to is changing culture. At which point, almost everyone that I know of says can't be done. Well, well, cultures do do evolve. I mean, so let me let me. So those are the three things. Yeah. Well, let, let me deal with limits to growth first because it's it underlies so much of of the uh, zeitgeist of the modern era, and uh, and I think if you study history, you know, the the it is a modern idea that humanity can't keep expect. So the limits to growth, a clever Rome began sort of anchored around the fact that that this massive expansion of humanity, both in terms of the number of people and in terms of the quantity of goods and services they could consume and were able to produce. And it's a new phenomenon. I mean, there's lots of ways to express it. I mean, all of human history of all the people that ever lived and died combined, there's more people around today, those kind of numbers. It's just, there's a lot of people and technology made it possible for a lot of people to live and survive and thrive and do things that not everybody likes, but set aside the moral or value of consumption. It's just a fact that humans invent and consume at scales that are unprecedented in history. And that began, as you know, in the 19th century when Malthus, long before the you know Club of Rome and others, other philosophers and scientists at the time, began to scratch their head and wonder how fast and how long these rates of consumption go, whether Malthus's case about people, whether it was Jevons case, which was about coal, because it was the primary transitional fuel from wood and and muscle and uh, you know simplistic wind. So this is a very it's a very modern idea, but also from our perspective, it's an old idea. So we're talking two hundred years of debate and literature on this. So when I say that Club of Rome was proven wrong, I don't mean that their methodology is wrong. In the sense, though their their assumptions into their methodology are clearly, in hindsight, wrong. I can show you my copy of that book that I kept and hand annotated to say that I'm not doing ex post facto observation. I believe they were wrong then about their conclusions, as I wrote as much in the margin, because they, in effect, had a static, quasi static view of technology. So that, in other words, they thought that the limits to copper production which they use as one big example, as the consumption of copper was rising geometrically and the ore grades were declining, the ability for the world to supply copper at that time seemed problematic to them. So they ran a model and their their model is a sensible model, except their inputs can't model what they don't know, which is what engineers and innovators will do to improve the efficacy of both finding and extracting copper from lower ore grades. 
This is true, especially for food, because one of the most common parts of the uh, limits to growth thesis of Miguel de Malthus was we wouldn't be able to feed everybody. There wasn't enough arable land. This has been proven wrong and over and over again. Starvation today is a consequence of deliberate action, malfeasance, or stupidity. Right? We, we have, a, in fact, someone said the other day, a very interesting fact about a colleague of mine said, globally today, more people are, have bad health outcomes or die from obesity numerically than die from outright starvation. Yeah. Not, we're not talking about that they're hungry, but outright starvation is not a form of death that's common in the world. But obesity is, causes deaths that are greater. This is the first time in human history, which means we obviously don't have food shortage in, in a sort of a macro sense. So what I objected to is was it, it affected the way people thought in terms of limits, right? So the International, uh, the International was an Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, which I think is still around. So I'd I think I mentioned last time we talked in Vienna. After, so about 20 years after the Club of Rome's model, and then they republished a sequel to that, as you know, after the 70s into, into the early, in the early 90s, uh, which I forget what it was titled. It was a similar title. So the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis took a different approach. They built their own model. Computers got better mm -hmm. by, the, by the late 90s. And they, they, they uh, asked a question about the carrying capacity of the Earth and where they, they imagined for modeling purposes sort of rates of improvement in technology in the future that sort of echo to the past. You can't prove that they'll happen because everything has an asymptote eventually. But they, they did that as a first order. And then they looked at crustal abundance of elements, for example, and physical quantities of nutrients. In other words, assume that I could find a way to use them and get to them with technology and assume they're about a land, an arable land, the physical land. What's the physical carrying capacity of number of human beings not, they're not asking an environmental question. It was a human being. How many people could the physical infrastructure of the Earth support with the right technology? Mm -hmm. Because this was all anchored in there were too many people. That's where the Club of Rome was. That's where, you know, Jevons and Malthus were. And that's where people are still, many people today. And their number was astonishing, by the way. They, I forget the exact number. It was something like six trillion people that was the carrying capacity uh -huh. uh, of the planet. Not without the, you know, not, not with pollute, assuming that you would not pollute. I mean, all these things have to be talking about the physical resource carrying capacity. Mm -hmm. And, and clearly with the ad adequate technology, we know we can produce things without serious pollution. We can do that. It's a, it's a technology and cost question. So that's sort of where they went. So you juxtapose those two kinds of studies, computer models, the, the, the different outcomes are a result of different assumptions about technology. Not that's that. What's what it distills to? It, it's not that there isn't the capacity of the planet to support lots more humans. So we clearly aren't going to get to six trillion people. We're, you know, no matter what we think about whether there should be more or fewer people in the future, the trajectory demographically is a no. to some peak happening sometime in the next century. Hard to know exactly when, depending on the new UN models. They all they all have different models about social, you know, reproduction rates and wealth production rate. But roughly speaking, the world will go to something like 14 billion, 11 billion, some number, and it start declining. I mean, Ch China's declining as of two years ago. India's still growing. U.S. is declining. Europe's declining. Actually, we're not declining. U.S. is net growing. Our birth rate is declining, but our total population is increasing right. from immigration. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, and which it always has. By the way, it's always been the case in the United States. It's been net, a net 
uh, grow or be large measure because of immigration over the last two centuries. So that so my objection to that was it it, it infected how people thought. And to your point, it, it's not that something is wrong. A, a model is not wrong to use, but the conclusions are wrong and led people to the wrong and into the wrong policy behaviors. In fact, policy behaviors that I find immoral because it constrained the ability of poorer people to become wealthier and live better. So that's that's where the bifurcation of my thinking began 30 years ago. And where we're still fighting the same fight. It's not about are windmills useful. See, to your point on the other issue, of course they are. And it's not that they aren't better. They're more than 10 times better than they were 20 years ago in, in, in sort of economic efficacy. I mean, this is cruelly a big deal in terms of an additive feature of the energy you know, marketplace. But we've got this artificial debate that's a political debate that either characterizes how one talks about these things as being either Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative, or you're pro-environment, anti-environment. So that's 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 where, where I, and I think history shows that if you look at the forecasts that were specifically made in the limits of growth by the Club of Rome, which was that we would not have a sufficient supply of copper, aluminum, uh, food. You went down the list of nutrients, and that didn't happen. I mean, 40 years later, all of them were available, setting aside the last decade, where we've done some foolish things. For the, for the 40 years after the forecast, everything they forecast would happen about higher prices and lower availability was wrong. It didn't happen. So you would think they would go back and ask why. Because if you build a model that's useful, you'd go back and if it was wrong. So what they're saying, in effect, we were wrong then, we're right now. Okay, well, I disagree with that for the same reasons now as I did then, because they don't understand what's going on fundamentally in technology, which is, by the way, of course, why I wrote my book. My book, The Cloud Revolution, is, a, in effect, the answer to, okay, what's next? I mean, what are we going to do? If, I mean, if you're, you're saying we have new technologies, what are they, right, as opposed to hand-waving that we always invent new stuff? So a lot of that, there's a, one of my big takeaways is that before that, I didn't see coupling between growth. I mean, I knew there was coupling between growth and effects on the environment, effects on the economy, effects on, sure. and my takeaway was that as we, as the population grows, as the economy grows, you start shifting into, you start getting more pollution. You have to start um, dealing with the pollution. So that's going to be yeah. one use of technology. And the more yeah. you start paying for that, the less you have paying for the growth and things like that. Right. So to me, the takeaway wasn't like we might run out of copper. It's that as we start running out of things, then we have to start shifting things around and, we have possibilities in dynamical systems. Generally, you can have a solution where it's a steady state solution. You can have some oscillations. You can have, right. and you can have overshoot and collapse. Yeah, yeah. And that I don't see them as having predicted anything so much as saying, here are the possibilities that could come out. And like, if I could go back, I would say to them on each of your part, on each of your charts, put a watermark saying, not a prediction, like behind everything, so that sure. no one would ever think this is a prediction. Sure. Well, but the problem is, you know, is that they they oper they're operationally and they talked about them in a predictive fashion. And you're right. Obviously, this is this is, but 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 it is a prediction in this sense. They're not saying this is what's going to happen. This is going to happen if. Mm -hmm. But the if is if we don't do something different. So we'll kill ourselves with pollution from mercury if we don't stop putting mercury in the waterways in processes that evolve 
use of mercury. Mercury has utility in, 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 in some industries. It's a useful element. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, but if you look back at how it was written about and the language of how they wrote the narrative, they were making predictions. They weren't cautious in the fact, a way you've described, nor nor were they forward-looking in the way the International Institute of Applied Systems Analysis was of trying to trying to tease out how that forecast, which is the model, would look if you put in different variables, like change, to your point, either substitution. Uh, you know, markets are dynamic, just like nature. People, markets and people react. So they, you, you, they didn't model that, right? It was a static model. So yeah, you could say it has some utility because you're saying if you keep doing what you're doing, you won't have enough copper or whatever food. Okay, that's true. But it, it, this is borderline uh, obvious and almost infantile. I mean, people and engineers and thinkers have been writing about exactly that for all of recorded history. I can show you uh, writings like that from Roman times. You know, they weren't dumber than us. They didn't have the smartphones, but you might even argue they were smarter than we were because they had to do a lot more with a far fewer tools. They were perfectly aware of pollution, and which is why they had plumbing and why they had running water and why they had you know real bathrooms, even though people think bathrooms are a modern thing. They didn't have pumps to, you know, pump sewage and but they, they knew you shouldn't pollute, right? <laughs> they they knew you could strip forests. Uh, in fact, because they stripped forests and they, they destroyed ecosystems to get you know fuel wood for hot water, and they figured it out. So they began planting trees, and and they had a sustainable system. Uh, there are uh, you know archaeologists have excavated huge uh, regions of tree stumps that are perfectly orderly planted. They've been planted for fuel wood. So you know they understood the sustainability of both of animals and the ecosystem. They knew about farming, otherwise they would have died. They didn't have fertilizers that we have, but they, so really this is, so the, the club of Rome in our modern times, so this 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 uh, myopia of presentism is like an epiphany. Oh, we've never thought about these things before. Now, to be, to be fair, once you get to billions of people in the world, to your point, you know, sometimes that old expression, quantity has a quality of all of its own. We don't know who really first said it. Some people say Lenin or Stalin or, when he talked about the tanks, right? The the Germans had better tanks, Russians had more tanks, and he said, "Well, sometimes you know, quantity has a quality all of its own," which is true. It's true in physics too, right? I mean, uh, it's true. It's true. It's a truth. But so a lot of people matter. But again, I I would say it, it's still infecting our thinking because so much of what's in the environmental community's writing about humanity's impact is there's too many humans, and some and too many of them are anti-human in my view, and how they write, how they think. And some of them are overtly uh, write in an anti-humanistic fashion that people who don't have much today shouldn't be allowed to have more. We should have less, whatever the less is, smaller houses, drive less, all, all the smaller stuff. You know, lighten our footprint on the planet. That's that's a moral social argument. It's not a technology argument. The technology part comes in to, to answer the question, how and this comes maybe takes us into your your energy that the, our energy brought us together initially. The underlying thing about energy, the energy debate is flawed now. Is to your point, is it? It's become cartoonish and bifurcated you know, for or against green tech versus old tech, right? Uh, this is this is a cartoonish and unconstructive uh, 
you know, taxonomy. The first order question, because energy is essential for everything, self-evidently, the universe doesn't exist, but for you know, energy, humans can't do anything without energy, is, is the, the first order and has always been until very recently, governments and businesses first order ask how you can get adequate energy to do the task, whatever it is, service or product, that's affordable, reliable to achieve the goal. That's first order. Second order is you. It, it's not because it's not important. Su- sustainable is sustainable both in a practical sense, kind of keep getting it, and does it cause destructions that are unacceptable, these environmental or other? They're not independent variables or interrelated variables, but they're not co-equal because adequate energy at a price markets can afford is the primary metric in societies and has been for all of history. And the reason we had pollution at greater levels in history is that we didn't have means to do to meet the metric of cheap and adequate and clean or clean, you know, to minimize impacts. So we just didn't have the, the capability. Not that we didn't know the that air pollution was bad. I mean, talk about physical air pollution that they knew killed people in in Dickensian London. They weren't stupid. They they knew when the inversion layers came with both fog and and in coal pollution that people died in emphysema. They knew this. They weren't idiots. But they couldn't do much about it and without giving up the need for cheap and reliable energy. So those those metrics have been thrown out, is my principal argument when I write about what is being proposed as a quote, energy transition. What it's, what's happened is we've, we've made the primacy, we flipped it, cheap and reliable it's just it's lip service because the things that are being done are not cheaper and they're not more reliable, right? And and that is the, the sort of the core moral trajectory of history has been to reduce the share of an economy that is spent on food and fuel, and fuel food being obviously a fuel and they're intimately tied. And so most of human history, that is until the last 150, 200 years, for almost every economy, between 80 and 90% of all of an economy's economic wealth has been devoted to food and fuel. The dawn of the hydrocarbon era dropped it to 20%, then to 15%, then to 12%. So we not only got a, a higher proportion of our economy available for other things, we got bigger economies because the inher- that happened because it's inherently more productive, which is economic. So we got bigger economies obviously in real terms, everybody's wealthier and far smaller share of that greater wealth was consumed by getting food and fuel, which frees it up for clean environments, healthcare, physical protection, entertainment, education, all those things cost money, obviously. So the wealth that's been freed up by virtue of chasing the metric of cheap and abundant energy is the single biggest transformation in history. I mean, if you map out other things, oh, we got the car. Well, you could, believe me, the car is, if you measure in energetics terms, terms of the energy cost and then the social and direct cost to people to move, to go places, the car was was a magical freedom-generating mobility machine. So was the airplane. So was the diesel engine in a ship. But all of it redounds in, under, in the underlying physics that the, the energy cost, literally the cost in dollar terms, collapsed into the background, which is why why my colleague and I wrote our book years ago, The Bottomless Well, the subtitle was Twilight of Fuel, right? The Twilight of Fuel meant 
that the food and fuel were just receding into the distance, economic distance, is being the primary consumers of wealth and economies. So everything that, that you know, when the energy transition movement is, is saying that they're doing this because of climate change, I don't have to have the climate change argument. It's, not, it's totally irrelevant. It, it, you cannot, and I don't think economies will tolerate changing the trajectory of human history to where the fundamental primary sources of energy are more expensive and less reliable. And, there's, and so that's why the arguments are engineering and science arguments. The, the path imagined for wind, solar, and batteries is prima facie, less reliable and more expensive. It consumes more money, more physical materials, and has lower reliability. So it's, a, it's not that you can't and shouldn't ever replace hydrocarbons. It's the, the technologies that are being proposed can't and won't at scales societies will tolerate, because I don't think societies will tolerate they have never in history. It's not, I mean, it doesn't mean they won't tolerate briefly because governments can do whatever they want for a while, and sometimes for 80 years. Soviet Union lasted 80 years. So the, you, you, you mean, but over the stretch of human history, there's never been a period where markets and economies thrive, where they make energy more expensive and less reliable. Well, it seems that there's, I, I'm trying to follow through here because um, I look at things a lot differently. But I want to get what you're saying. I mean, it seems to me there's an accounting issue that if I fly and someone else deals with the pollution and I'm not paying for that, then we haven't accounted for the costs of accurately. Well, the, the, yeah, the externality argument uh, is an important one, but I, but we do account for it. But go ahead. We, we, can, we can talk about how that gets accounted for. How does it? Yeah, because it, it, uh, it seems I'm getting something cheaper than it really costs. Well, okay. We have to be careful of our definitions of... So we are, we, again, we, we measure pollution. We know what we, so we have to very carefully parse carbon dioxide out of the pollution equation and deal with it separately for an obvious reason. But it's the, it's the only uh, legally labeled pollutant that's also a nutrient in a fundamental sense. I mean, it sounds like you're a, you know, one is a climate change denier to observe the obvious. CO2 is what plants consume and it's not toxic to human beings unless the concentration in the air is it north of 5,000 parts per million? Uh, you, can, you can breathe 10,000 10, parts per million comfortably. Mm. Uh, so CO2 doesn't kill humans. It has a, a, a putative future calculated modeled effect on the ecosystem of the planet. Mm. CO2 is a, a, obviously a constituent gas in the atmosphere. It has the greenhouse effect. That's not the same thing as when I put nitrogen oxide in the atmosphere in a dense urban core, right, and cause respiratory I- injury to lungs. It's not the same thing. It's affirmatively different, as, as, as is sulfur dioxide, as is lead in the bloodstream, right? This, these are affirmatively biologically different phenomena. So the class of things that we have treated as pollution, sewage in the water that we want to drink is obviously pollution because it kills people. So we have that whole penumbra of things w- which we've, we've been aware of and regulating and monetizing, in a sense, uh, now for m- well over a century, ar- arguably two centuries, but let's just say the last, roughly the last century. So this whole debate gets pulled off down the separate rabbit hole of, of when I fly an airplane and it emits carbon dioxide, I'm not paying for the cost of carbon dioxide. But the carbon dioxide, not the nitrogen oxides, not the sulfur oxides, not the 
fugitive minerals that might be in the fuel, right? It might be metals in the fuel. There aren't really metals in fuel anymore, but they used to be, like lead and gasoline. This is, this is a profoundly different uh, externality because it's a calculated externality. And, and then, then, then we end up going down this rabbit hole of people claiming that today's hurricanes or today's weather mm. are a consequence of that. You know, I, I generally don't talk about climate change and have that argument for a very simple reason, because there's a certain very deeply felt ideology about this. But I generally direct people who think about this to go to the original foundational documents in the IPCC, not the executive summaries, not what the New York Times writes or what activists write. And you don't find, one does not find, claims that today's weather are a consequence of the uh, level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. These are different phenomenologies, and they are, they are not directly linked. And you go to NOAA websites and find all the data you want and use your own interpretation about are there more hurricanes or fewer. All, all, all these data sets are readily available to everybody to look at without having to listen to public rhetoric. I've done that. Others have done that. But when you when you have that debate, right, that's a, that's a climate science debate. My point is, let's just stipulate that we could agree that the trajectory we're on will, at a future date, have negative economic and, and environmental effects. Let's just say that mm-hmm. that's not a crazy stipulation. I could debate the magnitude of it, but it's not a crazy stipulation. It's perfectly reasonable. This, these are future effects, which we, we then make calculations about their economic cost. This, again, this is no different than any other other uh, calculation we make in society. I won't change my point that changing the primacy of having adequate energy, food and fuel, at prices and levels of availability, reliability and availability for humanity today still is the prima facie number one goal and should be the goal. It doesn't mean that if that if you could show me, and this is why I write what I write, that I could tra- turn off a gas turbine and replace it with a wind turbine and a battery array, that if they're at the same delivered at cost of the same service, price and availability, the price of availability matters, and you want to make that switch, you don't have to you don't have to subsidize that switch. Markets will make those switches. Mm-hmm. But if you don't think the market's functioning and you want to subsidize that switch and they're actually equal cost, okay. You could say I don't have to have an argument with that. You temporary subsidies to push the market because they're not aware, which I don't buy. Everybody's aware. Mm-hmm. The problem is the underlying this is what I put <laughs> the underlying point that they're the same cost or cheaper is not true. So even though it's you know, chanted over and over again, wind is cheaper, solar is cheaper, electric vehicles are already cheaper, are going to get cheaper. These are just demonstrably not true statements. And the claim that they will get cheaper is also questionable, just given how we make the technologies that exist today. So all the predicate stuff I just talked about, climate change, externalities, are really, they're sort of the important debates to have but they're anchored in the claim and for some people belief that we have an option. The option is to stop burning the fuel in the airplane. Oh, electric airplanes will solve the problem. No, they won't. We're going to have electric airplanes. There are, it's not, 
but they're not going to solve any quote problem. They're not going to eliminate the use of, of oil in airplanes. Uh, th they will serve as a new class of transportation, uh, I think. In fact, in the next decades, part of my book, I think there will be lots of electric and hybrid electric airplanes for intra-city in uh, exurban travel and freight. Mm -hmm. It'll be a net increase in energy use, by the way, mm -hmm. but it won't have any effect uh, on global oil use for long-run aviation because there are no batteries visible in the pantheon of technologies that have been tested, developed, and are pre-commercial that come close to matching the energy density of yeah. diesel fuel plus a turbine. It, I mean, the gap is so wide that you, you'd have to believe in comic books, which club people do, to think you can close the gap. Mm. So that so those are the arguments that to me matter. It's why I don't I don't you won't find, as you know, in my papers, any mm. debate, I don't choose to debate whether the externality has a, a reality or not. It matters how much we spend on energy. It, it does matter. It matters whether it's available. And so you, we don't there's no mechanism you know, I, 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 so I did simplistic calculations. I don't know if I talked about this last time. So Europe right now is very worried about what amounts to a 5% deficit on its overall energy supply. Mm -hmm. So the loss of natural gas from, from Russia is, a, is part, part of it's been restored about, about half roughly, uh, through other, you know, LNG from America, from Qatar, pipeline reversals, you know, Fuel switching, a lot of gas boilers have been turned to oil boilers in industry. Mm -hmm. A lot of other industries have been shut down. Half of the fertilizer plants in Europe are shut down right now to free up gas for homes, to keep them warm this winter. So they've made up half of their deficit, which amounts to about five percentage points of the total energy needed for Europe. This doesn't sound like very much, but the five points goes away if that happens because it's a cold winter, then people will freeze. I mean, it's not... It, it's uh, it's literally life and death situation in a really cold in, a, in, a, in a, for a cold winter. So how would you make up that energy? And what they're doing is they're storing natural gas in gap caverns to make up the delta, and they have almost enough store, not enough to make up all the five percent if there's a cold winter. So you could do the arithmetic on this if you did if you surge the windmills and store the same amount of energy in batteries, you could just do the math. How many batteries would it take, and what would they cost? Because, yeah, that's it's gonna be a lot. You could only build what exists today. Mm -hmm. Well, it mm -hmm. is a lot. I did the arithmetic. It's forty trillion dollars of lithium batteries to store the same five percent of the of energy needed for for exogenous weather effects. I don't care if they're climate change caused or not. It's irrelevant. You still have to keep people alive, right? So you're going to spend forty trillion dollars on batteries. That's obviously a big number for people who are numerate, right? That's that's the whole world's economy is about uh, twenty, you know, a hundred trillion. So you're going to take forty percent of the world's economy just to build batteries just for just for Europe. Never mind the other six billion people and all the world's battery factories, all the gigafactories combined would take four hundred years to build that many batteries. So we'd have to build a hundred times more battery factories, each of them costing three billion dollars. And then each battery factory, I went up the food chain on this, each battery factory through a decades of operation purchases $20 billion of raw materials. So if you just go up the food chain here, we're getting into numbers that are crazy or, or put differently. There isn't an option. I mean, it just, and it's not going to be an option to, to switch from natural gas 
in Europe to lots more wind and solar and batteries to replace to replace it, not not to complement it, but to replace it in the vaguely foreseeable future. So when I write those things, it gets labeled as, you know, that I'm somehow anti-wind and anti-solar. Not, I, I mean, I think I think we have and should have a lot more, a lot more of both in the future. Uh, but they aren't going to replace hydrocarbons. That's the point. And they not only can't, I mean, physically can't, we can't make that many. If you try, you'll bankrupt economies. You'll send them into depressions because the cost of the systems is higher. The cost to store that much natural gas, it's real. I mean, it's billions of dollars. It's tens of billions of dollars. It's not $40 trillion. What if, so what, it seems to me that, okay, also, what about, what does this analysis lead to if we keep using fossil fuels? Well, okay. But we know the answer to that. I mean, if you mean, do we have, first, there's, there's, there's three. Do we have enough fossil fuels or hydrocarbons? I, I choose not to use fossil fuels. We can have a conversation about the uh, origins of hydrocarbons and the fact that it rains natural gas on Titan. Okay. Dinosaurs didn't have space travel. But anyway, that's a whole. <laughs> so hydrocarbons. There's plenty of hydrocarbons. Yeah, there's a lot. Right. We know that. There's a lot. And so we'll combust them and we can burn them cleanly in terms of all the all the pollutant metrics that other than CO2. We can, in principle, scrub CO2 at the source. When you, It's expensive. Uh, arguably, it'd be cheaper to scrub CO2 at the exhaust stack than it would be to do all the other things people are proposing. Uh, it, it, would, it would only, let's say, increase cost of energy 50%, which I would say is immoral, but it wouldn't be a 10x increase, which is the direction these other policies are taking us. So the CO2 issue is the, again, the exogenous variable that's driving all these debates this is why we're having all these policies. The mandate that California has implemented, you know, ban internal combustion engines. And I think England still has on the books. I think she may have reversed it. France has it on their books for 2035. Where no, no more, no more internal combustion engines can be sold. You know, I've written this and I would say it again. These are silly policies because we can't build that many electric vehicle batteries by then because we're not mining enough materials or planning to mine enough materials or able to expand mining that fast. So that's sort of at the first order, you think people would be serious enough to look at those things. And it's not a political statement. It's a, it's a silly political stunt and virtue signaling, but it's not a political statement to point out we aren't planning or investing in the capacity of input materials by large factors, by factors of 200 to 2,000% gaps, huge factors. And it's also not a political statement to be honest about the total fuel cycle impacts of the electric vehicle. And it's not about plugging the vehicle in, you know, what charges the car. It's about the emissions from the hydrocarbon machines to get the minerals to make the batteries. Very few people are being honest about it. It's become a, another cartoonish debate. But it's there's a lot of very good technical literature on this. This is not new information. We know how much energy it takes to mine a ton of copper, to refine it, and to put it in a car. Electric car takes 400% more copper. You, you could ask the question, and the IEA has, as, as the World Bank and IMF and a lot of academic groups, what's the energy carbon intensity of making copper? This is extremely well known. This is not a mysterious number. Well, I want, I want to grant that electric vehicles have a place, but they don't solve everything. What I'm, get, what I'm trying to get at is 
we actually solve nothing, frankly. Yeah, I um, I would tend to agree. <laughs> and in large part because of reading your stuff, which I recommend people do. But by the way, there will be more electric vehicles in the world because they have a high utility function for many applications. There'll be hundreds of millions of them. I mean, let's just stipulate they have utility. Yeah, I think. And I, one of my big things is I don't think people look at the side effects of, of as the prices come down. I think our landfills are going to be filled with disposable electrical vehicles because it'll be very hard, very hard to recycle those batteries. You're right. Very hard. Yeah. And the whole thing, I mean, we have sub $1,000 cars coming out of China and people already dispose of their, of their sofas at the end of a season or every couple of, it, they used to be like last generations and now they just throw them out. I mean, and sure. walk, walk around Manhattan the last Friday of a month, people moving out, there's like tons of furniture. Right. And right. I think if you have a, a car that you paid $800 for and it gets a major fender bender, it's just cheaper to have it sent to a, a landfill. Oh, if cars got, if cars get cheap enough, they, Right, you don't you don't have a second a life for them in a in an in a, an emerging economy. They're just trash. You throw them out. I agree, but that's not where, where where electric cars are going. Their prices are going up right now because of the material costs. Well, here, yeah, well, ever, all over the world, including in, in China, but they're they, they're subsidizing their cars for a different reason. It's it's an oil to coal arbitrage there. It's it's not complicated. So I'm I'm going to grant there's huge problems with electric vehicles. I'm going to grant that there's huge problems with going okay. renewables. <laughs> okay. What I don't see is, is from you, and maybe I'm, is, is what are the issues with hydrocarbons? Because to me, the pollution, mm-hmm. now you're saying that to me, carbon dioxide that we take from that for hundred million years has been outside the biosphere and bring it into the biosphere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Carbon dioxide, we, we, it's part of life, mm-hmm. but the concentration is going up. Well, so that's one thing, but also there's, you have to extracting there's all the extraction and there's all of the, there's all kinds of uh, let's. So let's just, first of all, rather than debate CO2, as you know, the uh, atmospheric concentration of CO2 going back over geological history has varied widely. And it's been, it's been as high as a thousand PPM in the general atmosphere. And the, uh, the level of CO2 that is extant in the atmosphere of the last I think it's 200 million years. I don't remember the exact number has been on, on, on decline and reversed at the 380 PPM level starting about 50, 80 years ago and creeping back up. But the, the idea that, uh, 400 PPM parts per million of carbon dioxide is unique in geophysical history, of course, is just not true, right? We, we know levels have varied. We know they've been very, very high in past epochs of the planet's history. So it's not unique. That is, so it's, yeah, stored car, stored carbon can become released carbon dioxide. The whole science of this is around whether or not the additions from humans will cause phenomenologies that are different than they have through previous history. All that's interesting, but my point is it doesn't, it's interesting science, but it's, it's not only hubris, it's profoundly not the case that we can do anything about it. That's my point is that we're not going to, we're not going to, so civilization will not exist without using hydrocarbons for a long time, full stop. That's, that's the point. So if there's, if, and, and that means there will be higher CO2 levels in the future, because even if CO2 production from man's activities ceased tomorrow, as you know, the models show CO2 levels continue to rise in the atmosphere. So the, whatever the future impacts of that are, they're going to happen in varying degrees anyway. Which would suggest the thing that we should be focused on is resilience and our ability to 
thrive and survive in, in, a, in an environment that's different. This is not capitulation. It's a fact. And that takes money and technology. So if we spend money on things that don't make a difference, it can't stop the use of hydrocarbons, EVs or windmills doesn't matter, then we're taking money out of the economy that can be used for resilience and, and tolerance and engineering our ability to deal with whatever nature brings to us, whatever it is, assaults it with. So they're, they're, they actually are, this is why I keep coming back, they're two utterly different magisteria, if you like. What is the effect of carbon dioxide? What was it like a billion years ago? What will it be like in the future? Interesting and important. Studying nature, I'm I'm, I'm a huge fan mm-hmm. of that. I mean, really, I don't mean that in a facetious way. What we can do to change our energy ecosystem to eliminate humanity's additions of CO2 to the atmosphere is what I focus on. What we can do actually, which is the physical engineering, do we have enough materials? Can we do it? And what can we do morally and economically? They're related. But my point about wind and solar and batteries, which is the monomaniacal focus of the clean tech movement, they're not focused really on nuclear, as you know. They're not really focused on new phenomenologies. They're focused on those things. They want to subsidize those things. This this $400 billion in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act is almost entirely about wind, solar, and batteries, what it's about. We know for a fact yeah, here we don't have to say that there's a problem with that. The, it's, yeah, but it's not going to change anything. It's it's a huge amount of money that won't have any effect. I so I agree with you. To me, if I at the top level, I think you're saying we can't change culture. Well, no, we can't lose civilization. That that's different than changing culture. Cultures are different across civilization. I mean, regardless of culture, there is no civilization. Sorry. Yeah, we're running out of time. I know that yeah, that's probably your next thing. Yeah, there's no civilization without energy. There's not. There's not. And energy can't be provided to scale society needs with wind, solar, and batteries. It's arithmetically, you know, do the math. Right? You can't do it. So people who are saying we can affect this rapid transition are either being naive or disingenuous because it's not what's happening, and it's not what's happened, and it can't happen. doesn't mean it can never happen through all the stretch of the imaginable future. It just means that it will take far, far longer than people imagine and take very different pathways, which no one's talking about. No, no, this is not, no one's having a serious discussion about that in public policy circles because they, you know, it's, you, you, if you want to say that's the cult, but that culture is extant from culture to culture. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm trying to get to that conversation. Conversations like that also, uh, Civilization predates fossil, uh, using hydrocarbons, and poor civilizations, though. Yes, unlike well, okay. yeah. So, the more that I read about, oh, see now, I, I'm, I'm, I want to be sensitive to your next thing, and we're <laughs> we're out of time. We can we can come back, and I could I could <laughs> we can do part three. Why not? Yeah, here's where I mean, because for me, for a long time, it was well, this way doesn't work, that way doesn't work. Yeah. Right. Throw, and I think what a lot of people just throw up their hands and say, well, you know, hopefully it'll be some sort of deus ex machina and, or, or, you know, I have faith in something. And, yeah. and, but I'll just keep doing what I'm doing because I've got to put my kid through college and that's important. And for me, it was, I mean, the reason I'm still off the grid, oh, sorry, <laughs> with you, I have to be very precise. The reason for right now that my circuit is open, so I'm not connected to Con Ed, <laughs> yeah, exactly. is that I want to see what's possible. Yeah, and sure, sure. and I believe that with, I don't take for granted that we 
um, civilization requires the um, the energy needs that, that we that you're positing as like we need that. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. So all of the things when you're off off the con ed grid, doing other things as as you know and as I've I've written about. So the consumption of hydrocarbons to produce energy to make all the physical materials and goods and things that you're using somewhere else upstream is real, right? And as a society, we have exported a lot of those industries. We don't, you know, the dirty industries, so to speak. But these are big hydrocarbon consuming industries for extracting, converting materials to make magical things like photovoltaic cells. So yeah, my computer's chips and all. Yeah, right. 90% of uh, photovoltaic cells are made in China on the coal grid. And uh, when metallurgical, when steam thermal coal got expensive, the cost of polysilicon went up because it's essentially, simplistically, PV cells are solidified coal in a crystalline form to, mm-hmm. it, in energetic terms. And, and of course, CPUs are, I mean, this, so those things are, those things uh, are real and are, are ignored. Uh, it is true that you can use fewer hydrocarbons to make a PV cell to deliver energy to your house than burning those hydrocarbons in a combustion turbine to deliver energy to the house. It will. There's not a zero. It just goes down. But the cost of your electricity will go up unless you're happy being, to your, your own experience, without power for whenever the sun's not around. And you say, well, I'll buy a battery. Well, then I have to follow the same energetic food chain upstream to the battery. And again... It is true that a battery doesn't consume hydrocarbons when it's running. It does to make it. It's between 100 to 300 barrels of oil equivalent of energy to make a battery that stores a barrel of oil equivalent of energy. But over the life of the battery, I can get, I can put in and out of the battery more than a few hundred barrels of oil equivalent. Okay, it's true. But that battery will cost more. I, I don't want to propose what I'm doing as a solution, except, except in the following sense. But those are the solutions that are, that are being offered in a, in a broad sense to society. Well, what I'm proposing, what I'm doing is going on a process of continual improvement. Yes. That yes. we can always, we always underestimate what we can do in a, in a year and overestimate what we can do in a day. And so I'm not stopping, right? This is not, yeah. Yeah. this is step four or five in who knows how long it'll go, sure. which I believe that if society were also to do that and lots of other people, especially people who are influential, sure, we could change a lot. And, Yes. I, so first, those are the kinds of, we'll call them social, cultural directions would be good. But this is very, it's a very different approach than the approach that's being taken. Yes. Uh, it, if it's, let's say it's, if it's persuasive rather than coercive. So we're in the coercive end of the spectrum now, as opposed to the persuading side. Oof, and it kills me. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I right? can't stand it. And then just, again, I'll, I'll end with do the math. If those of us who are wealthy enough to find comfortable and comforting ways to lower our footprint in, uh, in every respect. If we do that successfully and we can model that and we reduce our footprint factor two, factor of three, right? we, we could, it's not crazy to imagine those factors are possible with behaviors and technologies that are not coerced mm-hmm. in time. This takes time. Nobody has patience. Meantime, as you know, back to do the math, the 6 billion people in the world who consume less energy a year than in a year than most of us in the West consume in a week. And there's a billion people who consume less energy in a year than your refrigerator consumes in your house, no matter how you run it or the energy to make your refrigerator. When those people want to move up their levels of comfort and safety 
lifestyles to a mere fraction of ours, their net demand on resources utterly overwhelms all the savings we've had. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do the savings. It just means that it 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 doesn't quote air quotes solve the problem. Net consumption of fuels and materials will rise even if we do what you're describing. So that's where I get off the train where people are coercing others to do those things because it doesn't quote solve the problem, but doesn't mean that it's a bad thing to persuade people there are other ways to to live. Uh, okay. Um that the evangelization movement, whether it's for uh, practical or theological reasons, is a perfectly uh, good tradition <laughs> in human history. But it's very different. Evangelization and coercion, people know the difference when they, when they see it. Yeah. I, to me, I have my acronym CCCSC, which is <laughs> I, I see it's the predominant of what people in, in, who call themselves environmental are doing, which is cajole, coerce, convince, seek compliance. And yeah, it's bad. So we'll have to pick up next time. I, I'd love to do it again. Thanks for having me. I apologize. Uh, this we could we could do this for a long time. And oh man, I'm happy to. Yeah, let's let's do part three. I'm game. Sounds great. Thanks, John. Talk to you again soon. You bet. Take care. Bye bye. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.